So it seems that the masculinity crisis that many are talking about in the church today is actually nothing new. American men in the late 19th century were defined by increasing domesticity and threatened by physical decline in sedentary office jobs. They were absent from the church as well. The muscular Christianity movement was inaugurated to get men back to church and in ministry through the social gospel movement and through physical fitness. Joining me on the Anthony Bradley Show is Dr. Clifford Putney, author of Muscular Christianity, to talk about this movement and the struggles of Protestant churches to retain men. This is immediately relevant to today's masculinity crisis, and I am thrilled to have you join us. Welcome to the Anthony Bradley Show. I am so thrilled today to be talking to Professor Cliff Putney from Bentley University. He has a really, really amazing book titled Muscular Christianity, uh, Manhood and Sports in Protestant America. He's looking at the time period from 1880 to 1920. Uh, Professor Putney is the chair of the history department at Bentley University, also the editor of the newsletter of the New England Historical Association, has degrees from Hampshire College, a Harvard Divinity School, his PhD is from Brandeis University. His fields of specialization include U.S. cultural, religious, gender, and recreational history, and the history of the progressive era. In addition to teaching U.S. and world history, he spoke at various academic conferences and published a number of historical books and articles. He is currently writing a book about missionaries to the Pacific region. He's received a number of fellowships and grants, including the Brandeis Crown Fellowship, the Smithsonian Fellowship, and an American Philosophical Society Research Grant. Professor Clifford Putney, welcome. So glad to have you. It's a delight to be here. Thank you, Anthony. Um, and um, yeah, so what would you like to talk about? Yeah, I, I just want to walk through this really, really thrilling, fascinating book. Just to sort of lay this out, I, as I told you before, I, I, I've been teaching classes, I regularly teach classes on masculinity in America. And part of the discourse for me is sort of situating this within the Christian tradition. And I, I, I was blown away initially by the fact that what I was reading in your book, I'm seeing in some aspects of evangelical culture right now. There's been this resurgence of the exact same issues. And I'm thinking we're just simply on sort of, you know, 2.0 or 3.0 of the of the exact same issues and I, I just believe that this is a book for uh, uh, for pastors for uh, college professors uh, especially in the sort of sort of Christian college world that could really provide a lot of great context so I just want to sort of walk through some of the context and the history sort of to, to describe that because I, I think the parallels are really really fascinating and as I told you before my students were thrilled loved uh, this book. So I am I am really divided to have this opportunity to speak with you today. What is what is muscular Christianity? How would you how would you explain what what that phrase means and and sort of the historical context and 
probably most likely on the East Coast that really that really gave birth to that that period. Well, it's you know it's an expression that uh, emerged in England in the eighteen fifties, um, and then it was imported to the U.S. after the Civil War. Really, and it does crop up in the U.S. before that, but um, uh, it um, it's kind of a fusion of um, what's the idea that uh, religion should be infused with manliness, and also, you know, not initially, but later on, the idea that religion should also be very physical. And um, that Christians, uh, certainly Christian men, should be both manly and physically fit. So that uh, kind of, in a nutshell, is what it involved. Uh, you know, health and manliness. Yeah. Um, what, what, what were some of the things, sort of culturally, that 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 sort of situated this concern? What was happening politically? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's a great. Yeah, it's a very broad yeah. question. Um, there was a lot going on. Uh, you know, muscular Christianity. It didn't really take off in the U.S. as early as it took off in England, in part because the Civil War sort of sidetracked a lot of uh, cultural developments. Um, it really took after after the Civil War. Uh, one factor was that um, you had a uh, sort of Protestant middle class who, for the first time, you know, was getting larger and larger, and also they weren't doing physical labor anymore. They weren't farming. Uh, they, uh, they were doing um, sedentary jobs. You know, they worked in stores, they worked in offices. Uh, and so, you know, physically they were getting flabbier and they still were, you know, they had the farming diet. They would, you know, if you've ever, I'm sure you've read uh, you know, reports of what people ate in the 19th century, but, you know, they would have these five course meals. And, and so, you know, they were not working as hard physically and yet they were eating a great deal putting a lot of poundage. So certainly concerned about physical fitness. Uh, also, um, as you know, this was a time of great immigration, uh, particularly from um, non-Protestant parts of Europe. So you had uh, a lot of uh, Irish Catholics coming in. You had a lot of Greek Orthodox. You had a lot of Jews from Germany. So these are all non-Protestant groups. And, um, you know, people who were already here, the Anglo-Saxon Protestants, uh, you know, they, they felt that this was just kind of a threat. And um, so, and, and they were losing political power in the cities, uh, particularly on the Eastern Seaboard. And so they, you know, they were thinking, we really need to uh, make ourselves more powerful uh, physically, not only for our own health, but also to maintain, you know, cultural dominance in the cities in particular. Uh, so those are a couple of things going on. And then, um, there is also a concern about uh, feminization in the churches. So there was a terrific book written back in the, uh, must have been 1980s, by Ann Douglas called The Feminization of American Culture. I guess it was even in the, in the late 70s that she wrote the book. And, um, you know, her thesis was that uh, in the early, 19, early 1800s, uh, women sort of, you know, they didn't have middle-class women, didn't have the, the option of working, so they put their energies into church work. And, you know, they didn't take over the, the pulpits of the Protestant churches, but they did really um, sort of influence the way sermons were delivered, you know, the, the types of religiosity that were in the churches. And so religion, and we're talking, again, the mainline, what were called the mainline Protestant churches, the Congregationalists, the Italians, the Methodists, Presbyterians. So you had a religiosity in those churches that increasingly catered to women. and. Uh, 
you know, was very sentimental, very focused on the afterlife, and uh, was, um, you know, you had images of Jesus that portrayed him as very sensitive and, and refined and, uh, you know, uh, very feminine in many ways. And, and uh, so the muscular Christians came along and they thought, you know, this, this is not the trend we want to see. We want to sort of re-inject manliness back into the churches and we want images of Jesus that are very masculine and we want, uh, um, you know, we want an emphasis on men rejoining the church. And if you're looking at statistics and membership, again, you know, women are dominating these churches in terms of membership. Uh, and um, so there's a concern that, you know, young men are joining the church. We need a religion that's going to appeal to them, that will appeal to their masculine qualities. So these are some of the main themes that are going on uh, that, that sort of uh, account for why Muscular Christianity became such a big deal and was so popular. Um, yeah, so you had, you had sort of multiple currents, right? There is this sort of transition from an agrarian society to an industrial one. Right. right. And, and one of the things that, that, that also happened, particularly at the mainline seminaries, is that, you know, many of the more dominant men, more, uh, I would say, um, maybe ambitious men, you know, by the time we got to the mid-1800s, instead of going to Princeton Seminary or Harvard Divinity School, they were now going into business, Right. So there was also that transition from, you know, there was this day where, you know, you had you had four or five kids. One of the family aspirations, at least one of them might be a minister. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and by the time we got to the mid to late uh, 19th century, you're hoping that one of them would be a, in business. Right? And so there was, yeah, there no, was that's an excellent that point. Shift. You know, that, that, that's absolutely right. That, um, you know, the, the quality of ministers was, was declining, really, after the Civil War, because, as you say, it's not as prestigious a job as it had been formerly. Um, I mean, you know, I think in the black community, being a minister still is an extremely prestigious occupation, and so you have high-quality pastors. But, you know, in the Congregational Church, Episcopal Church, you know, primarily white churches, uh, um, you know, so that is a concern, too, that... Uh, you know, our, our, our ministers are no longer the, you know, the most ambitious people, the most uh, uh, striving. Um, and um, how do we get them back? You know, the people who are now going into business, uh, how do we get them to go back into ministry? Yeah. Yeah. How do we, how do we get these alpha males back? Right? <laughs> exactly. You know, right, how do yeah. we get these, these really ambitious, really confident, you know, strong personalities sort of back in the church. And I was, I was really struck by, the the connection you made between that and the social gospel movement. Uh, there are uh, many people in, in my world who sort of see this as a sort of liberalizing aspect of, of the church where the focus was mostly sort of thinking about it in terms of the fundamentalist debate, right? So you sort of focusing on on these works of mercy rather than evangelism and, and things like that, right? And that's primarily it. But I, I argue it was also a masculinity movement as well, right? It was sort of a way to get men involved. How, how I was really struck by this. Um, can you explain for us how the social gospel movement was positioned to attract men? Well, I mean, I think for, first, I think that, um, you know, it was obvious that this was part of the social gospel movement, you know, the, the whole masculinity issue. 
And historians just kind of dropped the ball on that, you know, because they really didn't know how to handle this issue. They didn't think it was very important. And so certainly you know, historical works written about the social gospel, they just minimized it. And, and um, you know, they ignored the fact that the social gospel leaders like Hosea Strong, they, they wrote books on the topic of, you know, men in the church. And uh, they use language like manliness and, you know, we have to do you know, manly front. So it is totally ignored. So it's a real fundamental part, as you said, of the social gospel. And um, uh, so, you know, the thought was, if you're going to do transformative social work in the cities, you've got to be physically strong and forceful. Uh, you know, you, you can't be meek and mild. You've got to go out there and wrestle with uh, corrupt politicians and you know, hoodlums and whoever else and, and uh, sort of bring goodness back into the cities. Uh, and that was not a wimp's job. That was a job for people who are quite uh, powerful. And um, so, yeah, I mean, if you read the works of uh, what Rauschenbusch and Strong and other social gospel leaders, uh, you know, there's this current of muscular Christianity that is very, very powerful, very, very obvious. Yeah, and I'm I'm just amazed that's often left out of the narrative about this movement because it was so central, I think, to the motivation for the way that even Jesus was was presented. You wrote in the book about the sort of transition from sort of maybe downplaying the fatherhood of God and emphasizing the man of Jesus. Can you talk about that just just for a moment? Well, I think, you know, that is where liberalism plays into it, because, you know, as you say, you know, there, there's a cycle of muscular Christianity sort of moves out of one group of churches and into another. Uh, you know, in this period, it's primarily the liberal churches that embrace it. And um, and so, you know, one, one aspect of the social gospel was emphasizing Jesus uh, and, you know, what he did in the world, as opposed to emphasizing the afterlife and God the Father. So. You know, the muscular Christians, who are also social gospelers, many of them, um, you know, that's what concerned them, too, that they they wanted to emphasize what you do in this life. Uh, and they also wanted people to have a connection to Jesus. Uh, they felt that if you're going to bring men back in the church, you have to have a Jesus whom they can relate to as a fellow brother. Uh, you don't want this remote God, the father figure. He's not going to appeal to young men. Uh, you wanted Jesus, a young man himself, who was active in his community. Uh, so these are all reasons why they're accentuating Jesus as opposed to God the Father. Uh, you know, the, again, this is a, a young man's movement primarily, at least it was meant to be. And um, so they figure Jesus is going to be much more of a lure to young men than his, his father, God. And, uh, yeah, and yeah. Yeah. yeah, so you had, you had to get these men... Uh, as you said, you know, uh, morally straight, right? You sort of had to do that. When when you use that phrase, it, it reminded me. I, I I'm an Eagle Scout, and and you know that's that's a parallel part of this narrative is the way that Boy Scouting was used to sort of sort of keep boys connected to the church. And we have we have this phrase uh, as part of the Scout Oath, um, uh, you know, being uh, being physically strong, morally. A straight, right? I mean, right. it was sort of this, like, I mean, that was, 
there was there was this saying, right? We're we're physically strong, mentally awake, and morally straight, and that was that was what we were supposed to be about. And right. we're connected to churches to be mentally strong and morally, you know, straight and and and, and mentally awake. And I thought. I thought that's exactly what so much of this movement was attempting to do with these young guys as, as a way to keep them connected to uh, Jesus, right? To sort of keep them connected to the church. And what, what were they expecting sort of the gem culture and playing sports to actually, actually do? I mean, was it just exercise or, I mean, what, what were these well, no, no, they expected far more out of it. And as you know, the, the YMCA was the primary um, exponent of muscular Christianity in, in the, uh, you know, late 19th and early 20th centuries. And I think, you know, their story of how they got into sports kind of explains the importance of sports to the whole movement because the YMCA, you know, was not founded to be a sports organization. It was founded um, kind of as a Christian relief organization. It was meant to provide uh, a retreat for young men, Protestant men who'd moved to the city, you know, the farm boys that moved to the city to take on clerkships and, and other white collar jobs. And they were living in the city and their mothers were really concerned that they would fall into bad company and start drinking and carousing. And, and so the Y was founded with a lot of support from mothers and ministers. Uh, it was meant to, um, you know, to keep these young men from going bad. It was founded in England in the 1840s. It was brought here in the early 1850s. Uh, and, um, you know, they had Christian reading rooms. It was kind of like the Christian Science Church later on. Uh, and the thought was, you know, after work, these young men would go to the YMCA reading room and they would read the Bible. They would have tea. You know, they would discuss theology. And, um, you know, they had some success with this, but uh, not a lot. And so they thought, well, we need to lure to get the young men in the, into the, the Christian reading rooms. And how can we do that? you know, what do they want? You know, what practical thing can we offer them? And as I mentioned, you know, a lot of young men, they don't have any physical exercise. Uh, there aren't a lot of options, you know, gym options in the cities. Um, what few gyms there are, they're, they're very uh, rough places, you know, a lot of gambling, a lot of uh, smoking, a lot of, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're tough people in them, you know, a lot of immigrants and, uh, you know, boxers. And so, how about if we provided a gym that is a wholesome place where these clerks after working these long days, you know, in the shop, they can come and they can exercise uh, under Christian auspices, you know, without the smoking and the drinking and the you know, carousing. And, and then afterwards, they can go into the Christian reading room and, and read the Bible or, or a theological tract. Um, and so that's kind of how the gym started for the YMCA. It was basically a, a way to lure young men into the Christian reading rooms. And then, you know, in a fairly short span of time, the, the gyms you know, became the equal of the reading rooms. And then eventually they, you know, kind of displaced the reading room. Uh, and the Y became all about athletics. But, um, you know, there was a time there in the late 1800s when they needed a rationale. Why do we have gyms? And, and muscular Christianity was a great rationale for having gyms. Um, you know, the Y, uh, you know, Luther Gulick invented a, a symbol for the Y, the YMCA triangle, which is still there, although they don't really emphasize it anymore uh, or as much, um, which is body, mind, spirit, right? The, the, the red triangle, inverted triangle for the YMCA, body, mind, spirit. That was Luther Gulick's idea that, um, you know, Christians should emphasize not only the spirit and the mind, but also the body. 
And that's what the YMCA is about. You know, they emphasize all three things. Uh, to be a good Christian, you have to be physically strong. Um, and as you, uh, you know, don't know, the YMCA was at the forefront of um, sports in the United States. I mean, it, you know, YMCA men invented basketball. They invented volleyball. Uh, they had the first indoor, indoor pools in the United States. Uh, you know, they, they exported sports overseas with their missionaries. So they, you know, they did a tremendous amount for sports. And again, the purpose of these sports, it wasn't to simply recreate. It was to forge Christian character. So, you know, basketball was meant to be a team-building game. Uh, it, um, and volleyball, too. Uh, you know, they they uh, they were much more in favor of team sports than they were in favor of, say, boxing or wrestling. Uh, you know, they they wanted sports that would build competitive, you know, inter inter uh, you know, uh, that would get people together and and force them to think as a team. And and uh, so, um, I hope that answers your question about yeah. the uh, yeah 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 and absolutely. And so. You know, there was this. I was I was interested in 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 the fact that cycling was very popular, and it became unpopular. And right. that, you know, this was sort of a part of the the history of, of sport in America, where we transitioned from cycling as you know one of the most popular sports to all these sort of new team sports, <clears throat> right? Right. And that and that, you know, maybe, you know, we we have this idea in in, in the U.S. right now, currently, right, the sport to build character. Right. It's just sort of a aphorism. And and is this the period that may have given birth to that phrase? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, character was one of the favorite words used by muscular Christians. They, they, they love that word. They use it all the time. And, you know, I mentioned that, you know, muscular Christianity was largely centered on young men, but uh, there was also a tremendous interest in boys' work. You mentioned you remember the Scouts. And so it wasn't just that, um, you know, Protestants were concerned that their young men were getting flabby in the stores. They were concerned that their their boys were getting flabby as well in the schools, uh, you know, going to school all day. And, and um, so they set up groups like the Boy Scouts to get boys out of schools and into the wild and you know, back to their roots. And, uh, you know, I don't think people realize, but it was the YMCA that kind of imported the Boy Scouts from England. Uh, they, they, you know, they wanted, um, they wanted a Christian boys group and they thought this ready-made scouting group, which was already extended in England, would do, would do the trick. So they were one of the major importers of the, the Boy Scouts, uh, the YMCA. So it was a way of, of creating a pipeline of sorts, right? We get the boys, form them in scouting, and then dump them into maybe the YMCA culture, right? And use that whole pipeline as a way to form these men to sort of keep them connected to character formation and and to the church. Absolutely right. Yeah, it's absolutely right. And what what were some of the problems that that when they looked at boys, they thought, oh, my goodness, we have to do something. What, what was going on with boys that they thought? Well, again, there's that immigrant question. You know, the, you know they, they, they look at these immigrants, uh, you know, the immigrants who are you know, largely doing physical, hard physical labor and, and you know, tend to be pretty strong people. And, um, and then they look at their own kids and think, boy, you know, you know George, you know, he, he likes to uh, read all day. And, and 
how is he going to compete with these really strong Irish Catholic kids? Uh, you know, I, I've got to find a way for him to, uh, you know, do some physical stuff. And uh, so that was, you know, one reason why the, uh, you know, organized camping came into being during this period, the, the, the post-Civil War period. And again, the YMCA was really a pioneer in this field, organized camping. And, um, and it wasn't just for boys, too. You know, there was certainly on a lesser level, but, you know, there were girls groups, the campfire girls, the Girl Scouts, again, a little bit later on, but um, also concerned that, uh, you know, that, that girls were also far too cerebral and, and not physical enough and that they needed to reconnect with their sort of uh, basic human physical roots. Um, there was a theory, it was very popular in the early progressive period, called uh, recapitulation theory, uh, which held that to be a well-rounded adult, you had to repeat all the stages of the human race as a child. So you had your sort of uh, early primitive stage where you're out in the forest hunting and gathering, and that was the scouts and the campfire girls. And then you had your medieval phase when you're engaged in chivalry, and and there were a whole bunch of boys groups called the Knights of uh, King Arthur and the you know Knights of uh, other I forget all the names, but um, many knights groups. Uh, which were for, you know, kids who were a little bit later, you know, maybe teenagers, um, where you repeated the chivalric middle ages stages of the human race. And that was meant to funnel you as a strong, you know, young man or woman into the more modern stages of the human race where you could, uh, I don't know, anyway, it, it was a very popular theory uh, in, in, in the schools uh, called recapitulation theory. Yeah. And I'm wondering, and I, I don't I don't know the answer to this. And, and if if you don't know the answer to this, it's perfectly fine. Were the fundamentalist churches concerned about these same issues as well? Do you do you know about about their relationship to to some of these concerns? Well, I don't think so. I mean, again, I think it would involve more research you know, that needs to be done on this, but. Um, Again, this is largely a you know, Muscular Christianity is largely a movement among middle class and upper class people. And that's not who belong to the fundamentalist churches back in this period. I mean, the people who belong to fundamentalist churches, they tend to be, you know, they tended to be doing hard physical labor, either as farmers or mechanics. And so they're not really fixated on, oh, I'm getting too flabby and my kids are flabby and, and you know, I need to send them to the outdoor camps and, and I'm worried that they can't hold their own in a fight. I mean, you know, it wasn't, um, again, it, this, is a, you know, this was a very, based on socioeconomic status, this movement. And so I think, you know, when, you, when, when fundamentalists sort of gain ground in the United States in the 20th century, and, you know, you do have fundamentalist churches whose uh, parishioners are engaged largely in sedentary labor, then, then you have this, this becomes a concern. Um, yeah. Also, I believe that, um, and I don't have the hard facts here, but I, I don't think that um, the imbalance of women to men was so great in the fundamentalist churches as it was in the mainline Protestant churches. So you didn't have, you, know, you would have congregational churches where most of the people in the church were women. Uh, I don't think that was true in this period of the fundamentalist churches. I think you had a lot more gender balance. Yeah. So that was the, the scare, you know, the scare about feminization and women taking over and so forth. 
Right, and what I've seen currently in the discourse is that conservative evangelicals who are primarily kind of middle class and up have the sorts of same anxieties about these issues in 2020 as the sort of mainline Protestants did in 1920 or 1900, right? It, it's really fascinating. There seems to be a correlation between sort of class and these concerns, right? I don't, I don't think today, for example, maybe, maybe in, in some parts there are some sort of working class churches in the evangelical world that may be concerned about these issues because of the feminization and the culture in general. But working class communities, because of the rhythm of working class life, right, typically doesn't have the same concerns about their son sitting around you know, getting fat and being lazy and not being fit and playing video games, because maybe in some of those contexts, they, they don't have the luxury of doing that. They ha they're out doing things, right? And you've also got, you know, you have immigration. I mean, it's a different yeah. form of immigration than from the late 1800s, but, you know, it continues. Uh, and so, you know, the muscular Christianity is largely a kind of a nativist movement. You know, the people who are already here, others are coming in. How can we maintain our cultural power and dominance. Um, so, yeah, I think that the, those concerns still exist. Um, yeah, they, they, they do. I mean, there, there are lots of people in, in the evangelical world who are, it, the parallels to me just really blow my mind. I mean, they, they have these sort of same concerns about, about their kids and the ways in which the country's changing and, and we have to sort of get our sons uh, up to up to par with with some of these changes, and so they don't slip into the sort of feminizing, uh, slouching that that that's sort of creeping into the schools and creeping into to local local churches and, and things like this. Now, during this period, you wrote about these sort of Protestant brotherhoods, these associations and organizations. What 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 were those, and and how did they? What what were those, and what were they seeking to do? Well, primarily they were seeking to bring young men to the church. Uh, I mean, these were liberal churches, but at the same time they were still evangelical. Uh, so they, you know, they were still very much concerned with with recruiting new members, and and um, and uh, you know they looked at the statistics, and, and they were not good. I mean, they were they they didn't have a lot of young men in the church, and so how do you appeal to young men and um, so, you know, these brotherhoods are meant to, uh, you know, primarily to be sociable, to, uh, you know, provide a religiosity that would appeal to young men, um, that would be focused on manliness and, and uh, sort of activities, sports. And so, you know, pretty much all, you know, every, all the mainland churches, they had their own Protestant brotherhoods. I think the, uh, the Episcopal Brotherhood was the Brotherhood of St. Andrew. Uh, the Methodists had the Brotherhood of St. Paul. You know, the Presbyterians had the Presbyterian Brotherhood. The Congregationalists had the Brotherhood of Andrew and Philip. Um, and um, there are others I'm forgetting. But uh, uh, so, you know, that, you know, it was a um, pretty widespread phenomenon. And they, it sort of culminated in what's called the, uh, the Men and Religion Forward Movement. When all these brotherhoods got together, and that was, I think, 1910, 1911, um, in a national movement to bring men back into the church. And um, 
So it's it's hard to know how successful these movements really were. I mean, you they certainly they put out their literature. Uh, did they have a serious effect on men joining the church? Um, I, I think they had, they had some positive effect, but uh, maybe not a huge effect. But they certainly generated a great deal of literature and and uh, um, you know changed the tenor of what was written for the hymnals and. Uh, so yeah, that that um, yeah, that was sort of the uh, the corollary to the boys' movement. You know, the, 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 for for older for older men was was the brotherhood movement for people in their late teens and twenties. I mean, it, it it certainly kept the boys and young men busy. It may <clears> not have brought them into the church, but it created a, it really created a third space for them to exist right as a way to protect them from the debaucheries that were sort of looming in the culture and i i can imagine that some parents being quite satisfied with with just that right that my son is involved in this and busy over here right he's not being idle right that's right. devil's playground right so he's over here doing doing sports and that's keeping him out of trouble right right and some gyms, I mean, the wealthier, sorry, sorry, some churches, the wealthier ones, they actually build gyms. You know, for the most part, they leave that up to the YMCA, but, um, you know, some of the wealthier churches, they actually do put in physical fitness facilities primarily for the young male members of their church uh, in, in this period, uh, you know, the early 20th century. Yeah. And, and were they trying to also do this with women, kind of make them strong? Where, where, were, where were women in, in this? Well, you know, that's a superb question. You know, there, there was, um, I would say, you know, muscular Christianity brought in the women with the muscularity aspect of the movement, but not so much with this focus on manliness, as you could, can imagine. You know, there was the YWCA, which was founded shortly after the YMCA. And uh, it too built gyms. I mean, it, it, again, it was really a pioneer in the field of women's sports. And it actually remained wedded to the social gospel longer than the YMCA in many ways. Um, and, you know, there were women missionaries who felt that it was important to be physically strong so you could go overseas and convert people. And there were group, you know, there were outdoor groups for girls, the campfire girls, the uh, Girl Scouts. Um, so, you know, this movement affected women as well, primarily the physical aspect of it, not the, the, the gender aspect of, of Moscow Christianity. Right. And I want to I want to go back for a moment to sort of talk about the culture of the churches in particular, because, as you know, this movement was was not simply attempting to introduce these men into you know, sort of mercy ministry, bringing social change, etc. It also wanted to reform the inside of the church as well. What were some of the problems that, that were highlighted inside these churches that 
was was hoped that this movement would actually change? Well, you know, iconography was a big deal. Uh, they wanted uh, images of Jesus that were manly as opposed to sickly and feminine. So, you know, we want we don't we want to remove all those old paintings and replace them with more robust images of Jesus. Uh, we want stained glass windows that'll do the same thing. Uh, you know, we want it's in this period that you see a lot of uh, you know uh, images of the saints with as as knights in armor. Uh, because you know these are these are really you know saints who could duke it out. Um, you know the, the hymnals, as I mentioned, uh, we want to avoid these um, sort of trickly sentimental songs about death and the loveliness of heaven. We want to emphasize sort of Marshall going out and and uh, conquering the demons and you know so I think onward Christian souls may predate this period, but songs like that uh, that are very uh, militaristic and um, fiery and uh, manly. You know, there's some great hymn books that I ran across doing this research for the book. You know, Manly Songs for Christian Men was one. There's some really great uh, books. Um, so, you know, the hymns, the imagery, uh, sermons. You know, we want um, sermons that are not terribly cerebral, but instead, and this is the social gospel influence, you know, emphasize transforming the world right now. Um, we want um, to encourage people to be active outside the church, not to come here as a retreat, but to maybe come here to get your batteries charged and then go out and do some real transformative work in the cities. Um, so does that answer your question about being inwardly focused? I think, you know, this yeah, is, yeah. Yeah, sure. I'm, 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 I'm fascinated because again, in 2020, some of these parallels you, you see now, right? There's in, in the evangelical world because of the contemporary Christian music that comes out of Nashville and things like that, right? This sort of, there are complaints right now. There's this overly sentimental, overly therapeutic Jesus who is, who has come to cuddle you and hold you and, and to sort of Jesus as your boyfriend, kind of take Jesus to prom, things like that. Right. And there's this concern that, oh my goodness, we need a masculine Jesus, right? Um, not just singing these sort of sentimental songs, and we need to go back to those old hymns and dust them off <clears throat> and reinsert those because this little sappy Jesus is actually encouraging men out of the door. And you have women who love it, uh, so says so. So say the critics. But you know, your average guy can't even sing this song, right? The pitch is too high, high <laughs> right? The pitch is too high, and the way the chords work out, and it's just too sentimental. And so, I was just curious to know if if some of those issues, if those were the some of the same concerns uh, in the in the early. You, you know, sort of late 1800s, early, early 1900s as well. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's, it's really amazing, these parallels. Uh, history just cycles around and around. And yeah, usually it's like different, you know, permutations. But uh, uh, yeah, it sounds very, very, uh, very similar to what was going on uh, 120 years ago. Yeah. yeah. And, and one of the things that you also talked about in the book is, is the way this really 
was intended to sort of inspire men to mission, <clears throat> inspire, you know, sort of encourage them to engage in, in, in international missions as well. How, how did that come about? What was the connection between being, you know, sort of a, a muscular Christian and going into missions? Well, it was certainly, you know, missions were billed as the ultimate test of manhood. I mean, it's fine that if you, you know, you, you, um, you go out in your, in your community and, and, you know, do housing projects for the poor, but what really would show that you are a manly man and a tough man and a real Christian is going overseas and converting people under difficult physical circumstances. You know, that's the ultimate test of manhood to, to do that. And it's not a coincidence. The YMCA was very involved in missions. People forget that, but it was really a very powerful organization dedicated to missionary work. And, uh, you know, they were involved at the Northfield Mount Hermon Conference in Western Mass. Uh, Dwight Moody, who wrote a lot of hymns, um, he and Ira Sankey, you know, they, they, they had a missionary conference every year which drew hundreds of people from across the country, uh, young men who were thinking of missions and, and women too. And um, it was a conduit to, to missions. Uh, and, and again, the Y was involved with this very heavily. And, and there, were, there were missionaries, you know, the Y not only tried to encourage people to become say Protestant or Congregational missionaries, they also had their own missionaries who were YMCA missionaries. And um, so, yeah, this was seen as a very important part of Muslim Christianity to, to go out and, uh, and it, I found it a little bit ironic that you have people who are complaining that American culture saps people's vitality, that it you know, leads to feminization, and, and then they want to export that culture. Um, you know, it, that struck me as a, a little ironic, um, but and, and they realize it too. And so you get a lot of things like, we will export the best of American culture and not the worst. So we will, you know, we, we've discovered that athletics and manliness are good things. So that's what we will export. We won't export the sentimentality and the, you know, the, the sedentary uh, lifestyles. We'll, we'll, we'll push what we find to be effective for ourselves. Um, and, you know, one of the, I think, a lot more research needs to be done with this, but, you know, the YMCA and other Christian groups, you know, they spread modern day sports overseas. So, you know, they brought certainly the YMCA basketball, volleyball, baseball, foot, American style football. I mean, they, they were the ones to bring these sports overseas. And, and they, um, you know, the YMCA had the Far Eastern Championship Games, which are really the predecessor of the modern day Olympics. And so research needs to be done. Just how much were the Olympics based on missionary work? Uh, you know, be before countries around the world can participate in the Olympics, they have to adopt Western sports. How do they get these sports? Well, it's missionaries. You know, missionaries bring the sports. And so there's a, you know, there's a correlation and a, a strong one. And, you know, research should be done on this. Um, just how strong was this correlation between the modern-day Olympics and, and, and 19th century missionary work? Um, right. So, so there was this, this interest in, in sort of creating 
a brand of man like, like we were creating in the U.S., right? Mm -hmm. who is, who's physically fit and, and morally straight, who can also sort of represent the kingdom um, in, in his person, not simply in his head, but in his entire, his, his entire body. And, and then maybe he can go be a missionary as well. It's just, I was just really fascinating listening to you because, you know, it's sort of what's the, what's the masculine archetype? And it's interesting to sort of think about how that masculine archetype moves around different Christian communities uh, historically and, and how, you know, this sort of uh, that, that, that archetype is, is pointed to as the model. Right. That's the goal. What, what, what would you say in this in this movement? What's the sort of masculine archetype of Jesus? Um. Well, I don't know if you're familiar with Salmon's Head of Christ. Uh, it, it used to be in all the mainline churches. It, you know, it's, it's later. It's like from the 40s or, or maybe 30s. But uh, it was painted, I think, by a YMCA artist. And so someone who is, you know, they, they didn't want a brutal Jesus. I mean, they didn't want a Jesus who was like, who looked like the Hulk. You know, they wanted someone who has, who had, you know, refined features and yet also had muscles. Uh, so again, they, they weren't, um, you know, they, they weren't recommending that people sort of leave aside their, their, their higher instincts and, and become know nothings and, and, uh, uh, just, you know, grunting brutal people. They, 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 they wanted, um, you know, men who were both intelligent and physically strong. So the, the scholar athlete, I guess, would be the, the model for the muscular Christians. Uh, right. And, and did, did this in, in any way influence, because, you know, this is, this is the period where World War I is, is happening, right? Was this, was this framework at all a factor in encouraging men to serve? This is sort of your sort of Christian masculine, maybe duty opportunity to serve in the war. How was World War One negotiated in, in this in this movement? Uh, well, in many ways, it's kind of the apex of the movement. Um, you know, muscular Christianity was kind of the religious subset of the whole progressive era. And so World War One came along, and many people, including the muscular Christians, viewed this as a chance to um, reform the entire world. You know, this would, you know, this war, yes, as President Wilson said, this was the war to end war, the war to make the world safer democracy, uh, the war to end evil. You know, the, the, the Germans were the evil ones. And, and, you know, once we eliminated evil, we could establish goodness everywhere. And so this was the ultimate test. And World War I would be the, or the Great War, as it was called then, of course, uh, would be the ultimate test of goodness and a chance to export American values, export Christianity, muscular Christianity in particular, overseas. Uh, the YMCA was hugely involved in World War I. Uh, it, again, you know, the Y was a, it's a big organization, organization still, but it was, in terms of uh, overall cultural influence, even bigger back then than now. And they provided, it was like 90% of all the recreational needs of American troops in World War I. Wow. So the government uh, wasn't, you know, America had a very small standing army. They weren't used to providing entertainment for the troops or literature for the troops or stationary pens, things like that. 
And the Y stepped forward and did all that stuff. They had YMCA huts, they provided the stationery, they provided the envelopes, they provided the books, they provided the sporting equipment. They had special factories in France where they made cookies and other delicacies for the troops. I mean, it was a huge deal. I mean, it's just, just an amazing deal. Um, and, uh, you know, they also, they, they kind of went, in my opinion, they went a little bit overboard. They, you know, they, they had these depictions of Jesus as a soldier who was trampling on the Huns. And, you know, they, know, there wasn't a whole lot of Christianity there. It was largely a sort of militarism and we are best. And, um, and, uh, you know, the, the World War I was really, as I said, the apex of the progressive movement. It was the, the, the war that led to prohibition. Um, it was the war that led to women's votes. You know, the argument being that women have helped this war, we've, therefore they need the vote. But then there was this big reaction to the war and to progressivism and to Muscar Christianity. You know, a lot of troops, a lot of Catholic troops in particular, they didn't really appreciate having the why out there trying to convert them to Protestantism, which the I was doing. Um, you know, it, it, it shows that the government thought nothing of entrusting the whole, what now the USO does, or I'm not sure what you did, uh, to a Protestant evangelical group, um, because the, the army was made up, you know, the generals and the brass, and you know, they were all Protestants. And so the fact that a lot of the troops, and I'm not sure what percentage, but big percentage of the troops were Catholic or Jewish, that was not a huge concern. So, um, but the troops didn't like being evangelized, and they, you know, the Y was very preachy and very you know, "Thou shalt not," and you know, they they weren't really keen on giving out cigarettes, what the troops wanted. You know, they did. They, they kind of, you know, they bent their rules and did give out cigarettes. They sold cigarettes, whereas the Knights of Columbus, the Catholics, they gave out cigarettes for free. That was a huge. Uh, um, uh, promotional uh, benefit for the Catholics. Um, so there was a big reaction to Muscular Christianity and, and you know, the, the language of sacrifice and do-goodism and, um, you know, the troops felt it was pretty coercive. They didn't like it. And people back home didn't like it either. They didn't like to be coerced into promoting the war. You know, the, as you probably know, World War I was a period in which the civil rights kind of went out the window. And if you criticize the government, you criticize Wilson, you know, you go to jail or get beaten up. And, and um, you know, the do-gooders were definitely in power and they were going to force people to be good. And uh, you had people like Luther Gulick, the inventor of the YMCA Triangle, thinking, wow, this is great. The draft, you know, this gives us a tool to take young men who are lazy and slobs and to force them to be physically fit. You know, let's keep the, make the draft permanent. You know, let's have it forever. You know, we should force these young men to go to camps and go to physical fitness training and, um, you know, sloth off all their lazy habits. And anyway, but there was a big reaction against that. Um, you know, people don't like to be forced to do things. And, and uh, so that's when muscular Christianity begins to lose power in the mainline churches after World War I. Um, you know, young men are like, this is, you know, this stuff is like, uh, <laughs> right. yeah. So, so the, the decline of the of the movement really began after World War One. Where did it go? It just fizzled out. Well, it still remains strong in the in the mainline churches, but as far as the you know c 
cutting edge ministers who are very talented ministers, seminarians who really smart. Uh, it's not as attractive and it's viewed as old fashioned and uh, kind of dumb. So, and that filters down to the congregations eventually into the, you know, the 1930s and 40s. Um, I, I wrote a paper on the changing images of Jesus in the YMCA, which I think is very sort of descriptive of how muscular Christianity has kind of faded away from the mainline churches. You, know, you have the muscular Christian Jesus who was out there carrying stuff, heavy loads and, and so forth. And then in the 30s, the YMCA begins to kind of portray Jesus as a friend of organized labor. Um, you know, who can hobnob with workers in the factories. And then in the, in the 50s, Jesus becomes kind of a world citizen who is um, helping to uh, sort of fight against communism, but not in a like muscular way, but more like a, I understand sort of world citizen, um, you know, there's a great YMCA painting of Jesus knocking on the door of the United Nations, you know, sort of, and then in the 60s, Jesus is the sort of a hippie Jesus who can play the guitar and talk with the youth and rap and so forth. And then in the 70s, Jesus vanishes from YMCA altogether you know, in terms of images of him and, and the 80s, too. Um, and there's kind of a similar trajectory in many of the mainline churches as well. Yeah. So how was how how the YMCA funded? It sounds like this history particularly before the war and during the war, it must have cost a lot of money to run all those programs and to export this. Who, who was behind? Who was bankrolling the YMCA to make all this possible? That's a superb question, but uh, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, a lot of the very first people who became involved with the YMCA, you know, around the time of the Civil War, um, they, you know, they were poor clerks when they got involved with the Y, and then they, they, they became millionaires. Uh, I forget if Rockefeller himself was involved with the Y, but he certainly was a big funder of it. And um, so they made pots and pots of money by the end of the century. And they gave a lot of it to the Y. They, they were particularly interested in, in um, having the Y build big residences for young Protestant men like they themselves had been. So in the late 19th century, early 20th century, the Y puts up these palatial um, buildings, many of which still exist uh, in, in American cities, uh, that started out as YMC, as residence halls for, again, Protestant men coming into, from the countryside to work in the city. And um, so, you know, the millionaires who themselves had been young men who had wished when they were young men that they had these kinds of residences and didn't. Uh, they, they put a lot of money into that. Um, so that's one source of the income for the YMCA. Uh, you know, I think churches contribute to the YMCA, the individual mainline churches do. You know, they have memberships that cost money to belong to the YMCA, and really in many places that's the best gym in town. So, you know, in, ma in many ways their, their work is self-supporting. Uh, and um, so those are some of the main sources of funding. And when you know, when and when YMCA longtime YMCA members die, they leave their money to Y, and uh, so that's a source of funding. So it was, it was this it was this massive parallel institution to the churches. It was seen as a way of maybe supporting 
the presence and practice of Christianity for men. Right. And culturally, I mean, who doesn't like the why, right? right. I mean, given all of the benefits and the recommendations for and, and the encouragement, right, for sort of keeping men involved and having their character shaped and learning responsibility and being physically fit, I mean, who's going to be against that? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm sure it, it was probably easy to raise money uh, in the in the in the late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, specifically for the for those activities. And I'm again just really fascinated by how this movement just seems to bounce around different uh, uh, Protestant and uh, and also also Catholic um, communities later. Right, it sort of, it sort of leaves the mainline church and and, and moves it to, to other other places. So I am, I think, I think this is an issue that that's at, at some point some historian will have much material to write a book about the muscular Christianity movement. You know, sort of probably nineteen ninety to twenty twenty, uh, because it it happened again, and I I sort of got introduced to this during the, the men's movement in general in the 1990s mm-hmm. uh, with, uh, you know, Robert Bly and, and right. emphasis on Promise that. keepers, and Matt, yeah. Promise keepers, right? This sort of, you know, sort of was was brought into the evangelical world. And it's it's alive and well. It's, it's an active, it's an active conversation. So again, I think I think this book really for me situates the present concerns historically to see, you know, right, there's nothing new under the sun, and this is not a new issue. This isn't even revolutionary. It's just in a, in a, different, in a different space. So I think this book should be read by anybody who works with men in the church, anyone who teaches high school students, college students. I think it's an absolutely fascinating uh, uh, study. I think history is our friend. You know, one of, one of the other projects I'm working on right now is, is the, the parallel narrative of, of fraternities uh, during the same period in terms of what they were back then and and what they became and, and what they are and what they are now and, and and again you see this sort of repeating recycling narratives in, in, in terms of, of interest in reforming fraternities and, and things like that so professor Clifford Putney thank you so much this is a fascinating study. I absolutely love this book. I think people need this history to understand the present. I am so thankful for historians like yourself. I can't do that kind of work because I'm too lazy, but I, I am thankful for historians like yourself who are willing to dig into the details and archives of history to tell these stories because I think these stories are, are absolutely fundamental to us making sense of the world in which we live in today. So again, thank you for joining us. Rob, uh, Cliff Putney, author of Muscular Christianity, Manhood and Sports in Protestant America, 1880 to 1920, Harvard University Press. You can buy multiple copies of this book, and I mean multiple on purpose, at, at, at Amazon, and you can have men groups in your churches read this. If you're teaching a class on masculinity, I would say this is a necessary part of the American story. Thank you again for joining us. It's been a great pleasure, Doctor. Thank you so much.